wonderful it is to... This Tuesday morning, four of us uh, take off uh, for Burundi in Africa. And last year, when I was uh, there on a Sunday in a, a small church... Uh, old church building, well, it wasn't even a church building really to begin with, uh, dirt floors, maybe 100, 120 people there. But in that service, I began to grasp more of the fullness of the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now, uh, what happened was, uh, during the service, a family, a father and some children, came forward and did a skit about Adam and Eve in the garden. And it wasn't particularly well acted. I suppose they had rehearsed it maybe once or, or, or two times. And, and it wasn't even in English. But it made an impression on me. As the father and his family were acting out the parts, one was God, or the voice of God, one was the snake, one was the woman, one was the man. The pastor leaned over to me and said in English, Now the father was a drunkard and never made it home with his pay. He'd always wasted it on alcohol and his family was starving. And then he became a Christian, said the pastor. And his life began to change. And his family is so excited to have him back. And they are all together in church here every Sunday. And I thought, that's what the Garden of Eden is about. That's the whole Garden of Eden story. Things start out pretty good. They get blown apart. And then they begin to get put back together. Our life in this world. Life in general in the Bible is lived, I believe, from Eden to Eden. Eden lost and Eden slowly with the help of God being rebuilt. Genesis 2, as Audrey described to the children, was idyllic, was perfect. Uh, they lived in the garden, Adam and Eve, with perfect freedom. They could have any, uh, the fruit of any tree in the garden except one. They lived with meaningful do, job to do. They were supposed to take care of the garden for God. And they had complete and deep intimacy. One assumes with one another because they were completely vulnerable. And we know they had that kind of intimacy with God. We're told that every day in the cool of the day, in the evening, God would walk through and they would visit with God. That's Genesis 2. But by Genesis 3, that is all blown to pieces. What was lost there in Eden? Well, a number of things were lost, but a, a few of them come to mind uh, this morning. The first is most of the scholars will tell you that there was a sense of innocence that was lost uh, for Adam and Eve. And, and I think that's true. Uh, at, in chapter 2, you find that Adam and Eve are naked and they're not ashamed. And, and most everyone agrees that's a metaphor for their vulnerability. They, they were willing to be vulnerable to each other in front of God and in front of all of creation. They weren't trying to hide or protect themselves, and that gets lost. Relationship seems to be lost in the garden, this deep sense of intimacy with God. I mean, imagine walking with God every day. There are people in your neighborhood that walk every day that you see them, and you see them walking together and, and having discussion. Can you imagine having that with God on a daily basis? But we know that's lost. Because after the fruit is eaten and Adam and Eve go and hide, God comes looking for them. 
And they hide from God, which is the first clue there's something wrong. But there's an even better clue. And to me, it's one of the most amazing things in the entire Bible. When God finally begins to question Adam about what happens, Adam decides it's God's fault. Have you ever noticed that? God's beginning to talk with Adam about it. Adam said, well, the woman you gave me, she's the one that gave me the fruit. Really, if it weren't for you, God, I wouldn't be in this mess. And so you can see the relationship between Adam and God beginning to be strained. The relationship between Adam and Eve is is certainly strained. I I love what uh, Martin Luther once said about this. He said, can you imagine what the next 500 years are like for Adam and Eve? You know, um, uh, Eve looking at Adam and saying, well, you know, you ate it. And he said, well, you gave it to me back and forth and back and forth. And the relationship gets pulled apart. And will you ever trust any of God's creatures again after what the serpent had done? Relationship with creation itself gets blown apart. We lost innocence. We lost creation. And we lost something that I taught you about a few weeks ago, a a sense of the world as God intends it to be. The Hebrew word for that is shalom. Our word is peace. It's it's not quite big enough. But, But everything running the way God wants it, and all that is lost. It's all gone. So I think it's worth just a minute of our time this morning to say, well, how did it get lost? Well, I think there are probably a lot of theories. The basic answer is they did something God told them not to do. But but why? But why? Few answers suggest themselves to me. The first one is this. They decided they'd rather have knowledge about things for themselves than have God's word for it. One of the things that happens is when they eat the fruit the snake promises them, they'll know good from evil. So they no longer have to have God define things in the world for them. Rather than have God line out what's good, what's not good, what they should do, what they shouldn't do, they're going to do that for themselves. And this sort of knowledge comes at a very high price. Uh, They want knowledge, I think some sense, I think like we all are, we want some control and say in our own environment. We just don't want to take somebody else's word for it. All of us went through that phase when our children, uh, as children, when our parents told us, don't touch the oven don't play in the street, but we had to try it for ourselves. There's that sense in which we want that control. We don't really want to trust what's been handed down to us. And, that, and things start to unravel in their thirst for knowledge. You know, they want to be more than they are, and the result of sin is always, in sin you try to be more than you are, and you end up being less than you were made to be. They thought it would be so great to know good from evil. But now, so many other things have entered the picture And one of the things I think that enters the picture and and one of the problems in Eden is they begin then to live out of a sense of fear. You know, the snake is pretty crafty, and what the snake does is begin to question God's motives. (laughs) You know, here's the reason that God doesn't want you to do that, because you'll be like God. And the message implicit there is God's holding out on you. There's a lot better stuff you could have. There's a whole other life that's a lot better than the one God's given you. God's holding out. Go and get it for yourself. And out of fear that they were missing who knows what, they go out on their own to try to find it. And when fear enters the picture, I've learned that we are never in our best selves when we act out of fear. So I think some desire for knowledge beyond, beyond what God had told them, a living out of fear uh, starts to set this thing up. And maybe the key thing for all of me comes from a theologian named Walter Brueggemann who once said this. He said, what the snake does is he gets the people to talk, um, Adam and Eve, to talk about God with the snake rather than to talk with God. 
Can you imagine? If they, I mean, I don't know how, what time of day this is, but how many hours do they have to wait when they can ask God, God's own self, when God comes walking through the garden and say, no, you know, the serpent said this. What? But they don't. They'd rather talk about God than talk with God. And Brueggemann gives this warning to pastors and other serious biblical types. He says, whenever you'd rather talk about God and replace theology for prayer, you're heading down a bad street. If you'd rather talk about God than with God. If you'd rather organize your doctrines about God and get them all in line rather than just obey and do the things you know God's calling you to do, when you go that direction, you're likely to end up in a difficult place. But it's lost. It's lost. And how do we know things aren't going well? There's a picture that I think a lot of us, because they don't sell fig leaves at Banana Republic or Gap or, you know, or uh, Macy's, we probably don't get the whole picture. But believe me, you'd almost rather wear anything than a fig leaf. Scratchy, itchy, it just doesn't work. It's not what God intended for you to have. And so the whole picture of just how far it's gone and unraveled is they make up their own clothes, which is so far short of the way God would want to clothe them. Well, it's gone. Is it gone forever? My good friend, Pastor Scott Hare, says that one of the ways to read the Bible is from garden to garden. And he said, if you'll watch Garden of Eden, things are lost. But God, through God's Spirit, begins working through people to begin to put those pieces of that cube back in order. To put the things back together. Well, how might it get put back together? Here's just a basic suggestion this morning. Why don't we do the opposite of what Adam and Eve did? Where they would desire knowledge and control, why don't we desire trust? Why don't we live in God's world on the terms that God has given us? Why don't we become more familiar with God's word and the things God tells us to do? Let's do them whether they make particular sense to us in that moment or not. I'll never forget another Walter Brueggemann line. Uh, PBS, you'll remember, about 20 years ago, has a series on Genesis and Uh, It's quite a popular series, actually. They have poets, they have scientists, they have historians, they have English professors, and and they're all debating and talking about different aspects of Genesis. And they come to one part, and Brueggemann, representing uh, uh, biblical scholars, looks at the rest of the panel, scientist, poet, professor, historian, and he says, you know what your problem is, he says to the whole panel. They look at him, he said, the problem you have is this. You want the God you want, not the God you have. They want to recreate God in their image rather than God creating them in God's image. When we don't trust and we want control, we quit living in God's worlds on God's terms and things don't go the right way. Instead of living in fear, why don't we live in love? Instead of trying to live out of a sense that we don't have enough and we ought to grab for more, Could we live out of a sense that whatever God has given us is probably more than enough and we have enough to share with others to help rebuild their part of the garden? John picks it up, I think, pretty clearly in his letter in the New Testament. John says, perfect love casts out fear. Why not act in love rather than fear? And finally, why not on Sunday morning or other times instead of just talking about God, Why won't we carve 
some time in our life to talk with God. God's walking by all the time. That potential for that discussion is always there. What kind of world is it that you want, God, and how can I be a part of that world? I think about this when I look at the last week in Jesus' life, because I think all of us would agree that that Jesus is, is God's major and prime move in putting this garden back together, restoring all that was lost. And what do I see in Jesus? I see a person who lives in trust not knowledge. Jesus knows he's going to die. He knows where it's going. But he's able to say in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours. Jesus knows what fear looks like. But even on the cross, taking all the beating that he could possibly take from humanity, He responds in love. And what does he say about the very people who killed him and those who set up and put his death in motion? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know. And believe me, when you and I are fearful, we don't know. We are ignorant when we act out of fear and not love. And then finally, the conversation between father and son never stops. Among his last words... Our Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's a psalm. It's a prayer. God never becomes abstract to Jesus, but always a personal relationship. And from that moment on, our world gets to be pieced back together. Now, all the colors don't get right exactly. That'll happen one day. It's not happening now, but they get back together when we act in these ways. Stories told of Cambridge, England, and a great cathedral there. And at the dawn of the Second World War, the families in that uh, church community figured out uh, that that would be a bad situation for the stained glass in their wonderful cathedral. So they took all the stained glass apart, and each family took a different piece of stained glass, wrapped it up, and took it home to keep the duration of the war. Six years later, when the Second World War ends, they regathered and began to piece that glass back together. Some pieces were lost. Some pieces were chipped. Some pieces were broken. And even today you can see, I am told, places where they had sort of mortared and glued it back together and it wasn't exactly seamless. But everyone in that community, when it was put back together, could stand back and say, it is almost as beautiful as it was before. Life as Adam and Eve had it was beautiful. It has been broken to so many pieces. But I think one of the things the Bible is telling us that in Christ we have a piece of putting it back together. Oh, until the kingdom comes completely, it won't be exactly like it was before. But if we all do our part, I think we can stand back and say, it is.